You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Listen to the word of God. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup of reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It'll come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. Who will lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Um, I've received up until I walked out of the study this morning notes from people about what's going on in Israel, and um, almost changed my message this morning. Came very, very, very close to doing it. But um, just in prayer, just sitting in the chair saying, okay, Lord, I've never really done this before, change a sermon this quickly. Um, So what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? And I just discerned that I need to give it a week of study and look and watch, and let's see what's going to happen. Um, In Zechariah chapter 2, the angel comes, and he says, he sent me against the nations who have come to destroy you. Um, And he says this, because he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. So I think next week, if the Lord leads, I probably am going to preach out of Ezekiel 38 and 39. We'll look at that. We'll watch this week. We do need to pray for Israel and to keep Israel in our prayers. Um, there are others of our fellowship that need uh, we need to keep in our prayer. Uh, Ted Farrell, we need to be praying for. And there, uh, there are others I can't think of right off the top of my head, but it seems like Hannah Blankenship, we need to keep in our prayers uh, as well. Um, So let's go to the Lord and let's just pray right now in these moments for uh, those that are on your heart, but let's specifically pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Father, we come before you and we thank you for uh, the nation of Israel We thank you, Father, for how we see things there um, that uh, we have seen in your word. Uh, And, uh, Lord, we believe uh, with all of our heart that we are watching things uh, that will eventually shape into the things that will happen before your return. Uh, Lord, we just ask for your peace over that whole situation, for your protection for uh, those that are innocent in all of this, that are not military combatants. Uh, We pray not only for the Jews, we pray for the Palestinians as well, Father. Uh, We do not harbor any hate in our heart against anyone. Um, But, uh, Father, you give nations the right to bear the sword, and they uh, certainly have the right to protect themselves. And, Lord, we pray that you protect them as they protect themselves. Uh, that uh, those in the leadership uh, of this war would be found out quickly and, uh, Lord, dispatched with justice and that uh, 
Father, there would be a peace once again for the people. So, Lord, as best we can, we lift that up to you. Father, we pray for our own nation. We pray for our president and for our vice president and for Congress and, uh, Lord, for our governor and for the state legislature and for our mayor and for the city council and all of these that are in places of importance. Uh, Father, we know, uh, Lord, that uh, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And we pray for those that are in leadership. Oh, God, I pray, give us godly leadership. Give us men and women in leadership who know you and not ashamed to confess you before men. Uh, We pray that, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Pray for me. I'm preaching in uh, Hartsell, Alabama tonight, and in Linden, Alabama tomorrow night, and in Anderson, South Carolina, Wednesday night. And then I'll be home and I'll preach to you Sunday. Um, somebody said, how do you do that? Well, it's, it's um, you just, when God gives you a gift, you just use it. Um, and I appreciate your allowing me to use it and uh, l- praying for me. I appreciate it greatly this past week as I spoke in Mississippi and Tennessee. And now we'll take the gospel to the rest of these heathens that are out there. No, um, <clears throat> thank you for that. And <clears throat> one week from the day, um, as I preach, pray for the Lord to direct my thoughts for this coming Sunday. Um, and um, we will leave uh, next Sunday afternoon for four weeks. Uh, this church is so kind to give us a sabbatical. They said, please, would you get out of here for four weeks? And I, so I said, okay. We'll do that, and uh, we're going to go for a little bit of a, a time away, and then we'll come back, and I'll preach at the South Carolina State Convention, and I will bury my brother-in-law, Debbie's brother, uh, during the last of our uh, sabbatical. So pray for us, and thank you. It gives me the opportunity to stand before the church and say, thank you, thank you, thank you for the time uh, um, that I'm away. So now... Lee Iacocca. You ever heard of Lee Iacocca? A lot of, I, I've got to thinking, uh, probably a lot of you younger folks have not. Lee Iacocca was the guy who back in the day when the Chrysler uh, Corporation was in the ditch, so to speak, as a car, they were about to go bankrupt, uh, honestly. Lee Iacocca became the president of, uh, of the Chrysler, the new Chrysler Corporation. They borrowed, I forget how many billions from the government But the amazing thing about it is they're the only corporation I'm aware of in American history that actually paid the government back. Um, Y'all don't even seem impressed with that. That impresses me uh, because there are a lot of folks that borrow from the government and never never pay the government back, but they did. Lee Iacocca also was one of the engineers at Ford Motor Company, and he designed what has become the most popular car in in automotive history, and that was he designed the Mustang, the Mustang. Boy, wouldn't you love to have a 67 Mustang? Wow, Uh, that's kind of always a dream. Well, anyway, uh, Lee Iacocca was with Vince Lombardi. Now you've got these two great men together. Vince Lombardi in his day when he played for Fordham, he was one of the original front line. They called them the four blocks of granite. And that's exactly what Vince Lombardi looked like. He just looked like a big old block of granite. He was the great 
coach of uh, the Green Bay Packers back in the late 50s into the 60s when they were winning everything you could win in NFL football. Uh, they, were, they were winning because Vince Lombardi, Lombardi had designed what was known as the, as the Lombardi Power Sweep. Then it became known as the uh, Green Bay, uh, the, the Green Bay Sweep, the Packer Sweep. And nobody could stop that sweep, and they ran that thing for like nine or ten years. Nobody knew how to stop uh, Green Bay. Well, when Iacocca, this great corporate leader, was with this football coach, this great football coach, Iacocca asked him, he says, how do, how do you build a team? How do you build a successful winning team? And I want you to listen to what this old football coach said. There are a lot of coaches with good ball clubs who know the fundamentals and have plenty of discipline, but still don't win games. Then you come to the third ingredient. Now, he said fundamentals and discipline. Now, he's going to give you the third ingredient to a winning team. He says, you come now to the third ingredient. If you're going to play together as a team, you've got to, here it is, care for one another. You've got to love each other. Now, that's funny that this big old burly football coach, Vince Lombardi, I mean, the guy that you always think of in a locker room with these players, these big old brute players in a stinking locker room where they're all sweating and everything, and he tells them, you got to love each other. Each player has to be thinking about the next guy and saying to himself, if I don't block that man, Paul, he was referring to Paul uh, Horning, who ran that power sweep. He was the guy with the ball that ran the power sweep. Paul is going to get his legs broken. I have to do my job well in order that he can do his. Now, that just seems to be so funny to me that Vince Lombardi would look at those football players and talk to them about how they were to love each other. It's exactly what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 12. Now, if you remember, I've, I've shared this with you over and over. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 2 are the two major verses that dominate the rest of the book. Uh, be, be, uh, don't be conformed, but be transformed. And so he's talking about that whole verb there of transformation is going to cover everything that is taking place literally in the rest of Romans. He comes and he talks about our relationship with God. We're to give God our bodies as a living sacrifice. And then our relationship to ourselves, we're not to be conformed, shaped by this culture, by this world. But I am transformed by the renewing of my mind. God has done something to my thinking when I got saved. In the, in, in the process of being saved, he didn't just take my sins away, but he has reprogrammed this brain to think and make decisions and choices and judgments in a different way. It's been transformed. It has, uh, it's metamorphous. A metamorphosis is taking place in our thinking. So he comes next and he talks to us about how we treat one another inside the body of Christ inside the family of God. And so last week, we looked at that. We're not to think too highly of ourselves, but then we recognize we all have different gifts. God has given every single one of you in here a spiritual gift if you know him as Lord and Savior. If you're saved, you have a spiritual gift. 
And uh, we struggle at that point. That's where a lot of Christians get into a lot of disagreement is because I'm exercising my, my spiritual gift in an area and uh, maybe somebody over here is exercising, just exercising, but they don't know what their spiritual gift is. So they're just working really hard. And then somebody over here, they, they're exercising their spiritual gift that is different from mine and they hadn't even figured it out yet. And then somebody over here has got a gift like mine, a similar gift, and we're exercising it in a little different way through our own personalities. And we get into fusses and fights and upsets over that that's why he comes and he says uh, to us, we're all members, but we don't have the same function. We are many, uh, but we are one body in Christ. We're many different functions, but we are one in Jesus Christ. And that becomes a tough thing, how we exercise these gifts, verse 6, 7, and 8. Now he comes down and he says, you exercise those gifts in love with one another. You love one another. Now that's where he's coming. So he's coming down and he's saying that a transformed love, my love is not the same as it used to be. I've been transformed in Jesus Christ so that my, even what I love and how I love has been transformed. And he comes and he, he's going to talk about that a transformed love forms the basis of our relationship inside the body of Christ. Now, what I used to call love was one thing. It was really what I loved and what I wanted, but I understand love in a different way now. That word love right there is the word agape. You understand that. It is a selfless love that seeks the best of someone else. And so that's what he's going to talk about, how we love each other. And I want to give you two things about it. Number one, the first thing is this, the sincerity of Christian love transformed love, the sincerity of transformed love. Now listen to what he says beginning in verse 9 because he's going to say two things that I want to say two things about the two things. Let love, now he comes and he says, be this. Let, let, it, let it be this. Let it first of all be without hypocrisy. Well, really I'm going to say three things and that's the first thing right there. He says, let love be sincere. This is the sincerity of love. It is without hypocrisy. That is, uh, it, it, it is genuine. It is real. It is, it is uh, um, a superior type love, and it is a love that is without hypocrisy. And the word anhupokrites, anhupokrites. It's a, that's a compound word. Uh, hypocrites is the word hypocrisy. On, in front of it, the prefix means uh, under, and I'll tell you what the word meant. It came out of the Greek world, out of the theater of the Greek world, and uh, out of the theater of the Roman world because the Romans imitated everything that the Greeks did. And that day and time, they didn't have special effects and prosthetics and all of the stuff that we've got today that transforms somebody when they're on stage. Uh, but uh, uh, they would use a mask. They would hold a mask up in front of their face. And that mask was a certain image of whatever. And uh, the actor behind it uh, would put that mask up in front of their face. And on hupokrites means to speak under the the mask. 
That, that's the word. That's what the word is. takes to speak under the mask, and we take the word and we make it into hypocrite. Um, now, you know, that's the word picture there, and you say, okay, well, explain to me how that comes about. What is that? How does that apply to us in church? Okay, here, here it is right here. You come in the front doors of the church, and you're walking through the front there, and everybody's kind of piling by and coming in. You're passing each other, and you pass a, a guy that's maybe in your class, and as you go by, hey, man, how you doing? Good to see you. We won that game yesterday. And then you get down that back hall and you look at your wife and you say, I can't stand him. That's, some of y'all never heard that. We've all done that. We're all there. We could all raise our hand and say, I've done that. We've been there. We have one kind of face on. And it doesn't really represent our heart. And you say, when a preacher, what am I supposed to do? Snarl at the guy? No, 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 no. It, you know, we, we don't want you doing that either. Whether you just go up and say, I can't stand you. No, what you should do is this. Listen down in verse 12, you're going to read this. Be devoted to prayer. That is, you should get somewhere, get on your face before God, pray for that person until you can you can get up off of your knees and say, I may not like this about him, but I can honestly say, in Jesus, I do love him. Now, there's, there's a world of difference in, in all of that. We're not to be ugly to one another. We're not to be condescending to one another. The Word of God tells us that. We are to love one another, and it's to be a sincere love without any kind of hypocrisy. I should really love all of you, and I do. I do, now, does that mean I like everything that you do? Probably not. And I'm glad I don't know everything you do. So, you know, I just want to see the good stuff. But that's what he's telling us to do. And in fact, he follows that up with another negative. He comes with this second negative there in verse 9, and he says, abhor what is evil. Now, the word abhor means to absolutely detest something with bitterness. I just detest that. I just dislike that. I just really hate that. I don't, I don't like it. I can't stand it. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about hypocrisy. He says, you as a transformed believer uh, should abhor what is evil and hypocrisy is evil. And you say, well, I don't think it's that bad. Well, listen, let's just take the word of God over your word, okay? And the word of God says, abhor what is evil. So all sin is sin before God. James says you can keep the whole law and offend in one point, then you're guilty of it all. Now that's the word of God. That's not Mac Brunson. The word of God says abhor it. In other words, I hate it when I am hypocritical. I, I, you know, it, now I'm not saying I hate myself. Listen, you know, there are a lot of things that we, we say that really we should rethink what we say. The Bible never tells me to hate myself. It tells me to hate sin. Uh, just as the Bible never tells me to love myself, it tells me to love others. Come on now. Oprah tells me that, but the Word of God doesn't tell me that. It tells me to love others. It tells me to love the Lord. It, you know, it never, it never wants to bring me to the point to where I inflate myself. It, it also tells me don't even trust yourself. 
Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll direct your path. He does a much better job at it than I do. So he comes and he says what we should do is we should detest in our life those moments when we act hypocritical. I said, I, listen, I know this isn't popular. I know it's not, and I know it's not fun to hear, and I've had to work with it all week. I've had to deal with this all week thinking about this, but it is what is best for us, and this is the way we behave toward one another in the church. We have a love for one another without hypocrisy, abhorring what is evil. Now you come to the positive. Look at this, clinging to what is good. He tells us, you cling to what is good in life. What is good? And the first thing I think of when I think of good is I think of what I'm told about Jesus. He went about doing what? He went about doing good. That should be my life. That should be my goal is that I am trying to, to do the good. Now, when he says cling to it, it's a word. Give me a second. I'll think of it in the Greek. It's kalo, uh, kalaoma. Uh, Kalaoma means to glue. You're glued to it. You are glued to the good. That doesn't mean when you see something good, you say, oh yeah, we probably should do that. No, it means you find what is good and you reach out and you cling to it and you become glued to it like it's a part of your life. I'm going to behave in this way and I'm going to do what is good because... In doing what is good, I am becoming like Jesus Christ. Now, listen to what he says. That's the way your love is to be. By the way, I didn't point this out, and I wanted to point it out because I did hard work discovering this. You see love there, let love, verse 9. It's the noun that is there. Let love be without hypocrisy. Uh, that is the second. Um, uh, Oh, gosh, I've forgotten now the Greek term, and I was so proud that I had learned it. Uh, it's the second predicate position in the sentence, which places emphasis on the noun. The second predicate position places an emphasis on the noun, love. Now, that's what he's talking about. He's saying love, this type of transformed love is sincere in that it is not hypocritical, and it abhors what is evil, but it clings to what is good. What is that? Love. Now, let me tell you, we get our notions of love from people like J-Lo and Tom Cruise, and, and none of these people can hang on. Taylor Swift, is that right? Is that a girl's name? Taylor Swift? They can't hold on to anybody. And yet we follow their definition of love, which I, I am confused at what their definition of love is. I have no idea what their definition of love is. They don't have any idea what their definition of love is. They just hop from romance to romance to romance to romance because their idea is all Hollywood, all love is romance. No, it's not. Now, we've been married 43 years, but not every minute of every hour of every day do I feel romantic. When the grandkids have been over and she says, come on, we've got to clean the bathrooms, I have no romantic feeling for my wife at all in that moment. <laughs> but my love isn't based on that. 
It is based on a commitment that has been made, regardless of how I feel. Your love is not emotion. It is not feeling. We have been taught that. I'm telling you, do not be shaped by this culture. God's word comes, and God's word is agape, and it is a love that says, I choose, I determine, I love you. I told you that the first day I came here as your pastor. I didn't even know you, but I said, I determined to love you, and I have not found a single person in this congregation as of yet after five years that I do not love. I'm looking for them, but I hadn't found them yet. I hadn't found them yet. So that's what he says. We are to have a sincere love in this body for one another. Now that's verse 9. Now let's come to verse 10. Because in verse 10, he's going to give you a string of verses now that speak of the demonstration of a transformed love in the fellowship. How does it live out? What is it like? What does it look like? What does it sound like? How, how does it act, this transformed love? Well, you come, and the first thing here is the commitment that is made. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Now, that's verse 10, and that's the commitment there that I'm just speaking of. He comes and he says, you be devoted. There is this devotion that is there. Uh, that's a word, by the way, for for love in the Greek. I'm going to come back to it. But it's a word that is, um, it's a word that is philos uh, storge. Philos storge is the word. He, and let me come back to that. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now, you know that word. What is the word there for brotherly love? You've been in a Baptist church long enough to know that. Phileo. That's exactly right. You know, that, uh, you know that word, philos, phileo, brotherly love, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But now look at what he says here. What he says is this, be philos, storge, to one another in phileo. That is philos, brotherly love, storge is a word for family love. It was a word in the Greek that was given to a bird that expressed a lot of love for its children. Storge is what kind of bird? Stork. See, you all know Greek. Stork. It's the stork. It's the bird that brings the babies. Why? Because the stork loves little babies. So he's saying here, you have a family-type love. Look at what he's saying. He says, you have this family-type love, this deeply devoted love to one another in brotherly love. He is just stacking love on top of love on top of love. He's saying, this is how we get along in the church. This is how we change our culture. This is how we change our community. This is how you change the people that are around you. He comes and he says, it's a demonstration of this devotion that we love each other with this brotherly love. Now as to the love of the brethren, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, now as to the, uh, to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. If there, you know, there are certain things that when you come to Jesus Christ, you kinda, it kind of automatically, you, you learn it, you know it, you sense it, 
The Spirit of God kind of awakens it in you. And one of those things happens to be when I come to Jesus Christ, I'm supposed to love everybody, right? I mean, I didn't have to take theology to figure that out. I didn't even have to be familiar with the Scripture to figure that out. I just simply understood when I gave my life to Christ, then I, I come to the place where I love everybody. Well, that's what Paul is saying there. That's what he's saying here in Romans chapter 12. Now comes the deference. I not only love that way, but I give preference. Look at the rest of verse 10. Give preference to one another in honor. That is, I pay deference to you. I'm transformed so that now, look back up to verse 3 of chapter 12. I love how all this stuff is in context. He says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think more highly of himself than he ought to think. No, I think less of myself. I think more of you. Now, let me ask you, could anything be more opposite in the world and in America today than that? I don't know anything that could be more, more diametrically approached. I give preference to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11 says, encouraging one another, build up one another, just as you were doing, as he says to the church at Thessalonica. He says, you're building one another up. That's how we demonstrate our love. 1 Peter 3, verse 8, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Then you've got the passage out of Colossians that uh, Kirkwood read just a few moments ago. It's another great passage where Paul is continuously telling us how we are to be pouring ourselves into each other, loving each other, expressing that love to each other. He says, give preference to one another now. That is the commitment. Here comes the energetic expression of that. Now, what is energetic? Verse 11 and verse 12. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope. I see these. Verse 12 to me is kind of the outpouring of what you do in verse 11. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. But look at what he says in verse 11. He comes there and he says this, not lagging behind. Let me save that to last. He comes here and he says, in diligence. That's the attitude. Um, uh, spude is the word. I love that little word in Greek. Spude. Uh, that's a good word coming up on Halloween. Spude, you know, kind of deal. It means earnestness. It means speed. It means eagerness. With an eagerness, I'm doing this. With a diligence, with an earnestness, I'm doing it quickly. That's my attitude. Here's the action. Fervent in spirit. The word fervent means to bring something to a boil. You're bringing a pan of water to a boil. It speaks of how hot it is that it's boiling. It's passion. Do it with passion. Do it with earnestness. Well, what do we do? Doulos, kurios, servant of the Lord. Now, a doulos was a bond servant. That is, I've, I couldn't pay my debts. You know, I was head and heel over debts, and so I couldn't pay them. And so I become a servant to the guy that I owed the money to. And so for, you know, you remember me doing this sermon uh, you can only do that for like seven years, and then that was it, really, uh, up to the seventh year. And then you were set free. 
But if I was set free and uh, I really didn't want to leave, I, I had fallen in love with the master and um, I had fallen in love with the master's family and being there with them and felt a part of the family uh, in, in, in this Jewish home, I could become a doulos. And they would take me to the front of the door and they would take the lobe of my ear and they would take an awl, A-W-L, awl, not oil, you know, in the South. I need some oil. Um, but they would pierce our ear with an awl. <laughs> and that would say, I'm a bond servant. That would become a testimony of the goodness of my master. It would become a testimony of the goodness of the family that I was with. And so he comes and he says this. He, he says, in diligence, with haste, earnestness, uh, with passion and spirit, I am serving. But who am I serving? Those in the fellowship. But especially, he begins this, with those not lagging behind. That is, those that were lagging behind, I am earnestly, fervently, with a passion, seeking to serve them by pulling them up into the body, into the family where they should be. Now, I want to give you, I want to give you, man, I could stop and spend the rest of this sermon on this, but I can't do it. But I want to, I want to tell you what that's a picture of. You remember, we've just come out of Exodus. I talked about all 12 tribes. You remember how they camped around the tabernacle. And then, you know, you had the tribes to the east that would set out first, and then the next group, and the next group. You had three tribes set out, and three tribes set out, and three tribes more. And then the last three tribes, you know who was the last tribe uh, to come behind the other 11 tribes, the tribe of Dan. Dan had the responsibility. In fact, Spurgeon, Spurgeon made a glorious statement about the tribe of Dan. I wish I could remember, but it basically said, oh, if we could all be like the tribe of Dan, because the tribe of Dan was the rear guard. And what they would do is they would catch every older person who was too slow to walk fast with the rest or, or, or young people, or sick people, or people that were infirmed, Dan stayed back there to protect them, and they kept herding them on up with the rest of the... That's what we're to do with each other. Do you all understand that? That's what we're to do with each other. Somebody not here today that you, you recognize they're not here, then don't let this week go by. You don't call and check on them. Encourage them to be back in church. Encourage them in the faith. Encourage them to be in the word of God. Just tell them you love them. If nothing else, I loved you. I missed you. I'm looking forward to seeing you this coming week. And that's sincere. I'm serious about that. And so that's what we do in the, inside the We help hold each other accountable. We help uh, spur one, other, uh, one another on. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, and uh, look for ways to spur each other on, encourage each other, especially as you see the day drawing near. And the day drawing near is the second coming of Christ. We should be, we should be, you know, looking to encourage and bring those that are straggling, those that are behind, those that are close to dropping out. We need to be spurring them on. And I can't do that with everybody. If I don't have you helping me do that, I can't do it. Amen, preacher. Amen. Amen. That is our responsibility. You're exactly right. 
Well, he comes and then he's going to do this. I want you to look at the last thing. It's the care that we give. He makes two statements, but they're basically those on the inside and those on the outside contributing to the needs of the saints. Do you remember what is said in Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 44, when it says, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they were sharing all things. When I've had some people say, well, that sounds like communism. Well, not on your life, buddy. That was voluntary in Acts. There was no dictator standing over the church making everybody give up everything they had. But it was the Spirit of God moving in hearts to say, I've got a little extra, I can help you. I've got something I can do for you, I can help you. I've got something that may be of benefit to you, I can be, I, I can be a blessing to you. That's what he's saying there, is that we are looking for ways to help one another, contributing to the needs of the saints. There should not be anybody within the family of God that has a great need that we can't in some way help a little bit. Now, we can't take over everybody's house payment, everybody's car payment, and everybody's, you know, uh, season tickets to Auburn, Alabama. We can't do that. But if you've got a legitimate need, if you need some groceries, we need to be able to come there and try to help you with some of that. That's, I, honestly, the government doesn't have any, it shouldn't have anything to do with this. It should be the church doing these kind of things. And think how much less your taxes would be. I'd rather give it to God any day than I had to Uncle Sam. Anyway, somebody just about got excited over there. Here, here's the second thing, practicing hospitality. Now, that's going out and just seeing who can I be hospitable to? Who can I go to outside of the body of Christ and open my heart and my arms and my home and I can just show them. We were just in Dallas this past Thursday night, uh, 20-something years ago, 20 years ago, I guess it was, that, that uh, this little Filipino lady in the church, uh, I was her pastor. I did not really know Susie until she came up that day, and uh, her husband had committed suicide. Her mother had died, and she looked at me, and she said, I'm an orphan, and I'm a widow, and I don't have anybody, but God's called me to do a ministry, and I want you to pray for me. So Debbie and I prayed for her. And we got to know her, and she came back, and we prayed with her, and we talked with her, and we helped her for that year, and uh, we, we, we did a bunch of stuff to help her. And, and the ministry was this. I'll start off. I'll just tell you this. The way her ministry started off is that she said, oh, God, what can I do? What can I do? I'm orphaned. I'm a widow. I, I'm in a sad situation in life. My life is not worth anything. I just i am depressed, and I have nothing that I can offer. And he said, well, yeah, you do. Just look. As you're driving down the road, just look to your left right now. And she said, I looked to the left, and she said, there was a family that was sleeping up under a bridge there in Dallas. And she said, God told her, now go get some blankets and bring those blankets back to them. So she went and got some blankets and she brought blankets back to them. And that's how that ministry started. They're in 52 countries now. And they're bringing in millions of dollars and they're giving it all away. This little old woman, she hadn't taken hardly anything for herself. She's still a single Filipino widow, orphaned woman who will twist your arm for money. 
so she can give it away. Now, let me tell you what they do. When they take their own people in operation care and they take them overseas, uh, she was showing a picture of them in Vietnam. Do you know what they do with the people that are out on the street in Vietnam? Now, they, she said, we're going to show them the, the, the care of Jesus and we're going to share Jesus with them. Do you know what they do with these street people? They wash their feet. And as they wash their feet and dry their feet, they tell them about the love of Jesus Christ for them. So that they, that's not a whole lot you have to do. So that showing somebody some love in a very unusual, significant way. I mean, you got to care about people to go and start washing their feet. And you're telling them about Jesus Christ. You say, that's how we care for each other. That, that's what we do with hospitality. We go out to the world and find the world and listen. They're starved to know about the love of Jesus Christ. And we've all got our gifts to use to do this with. But why don't we do it? Now, I'm going to show you an illustration. I've got some musicians coming out. And um, I'm going to show you something with these musicians it's really a picture of the church. It's a picture of you. It's a picture of me. It's a picture of all of us, of, um, of what God intends for the church to be because these are very gifted. Here's Luke. Luke came home from college. Uh, they let him loose from up there. And uh, this is Anna, and this is Mala. Did I get it right, Mala? I got it right. Now, Anna has graduated from school. She plays with the New York Philharmonic. That's what I assigned that to her. And uh, Mila plays with the, uh, with the orchestra from Atlanta. And, uh, and this one just goes to school. He plays here. So Now, I'm going to get, now listen, guys, I just, want, I just want Anna to play this. And then let me bring you in when, when I get ready for you. So Anna's going to play eight notes, eight notes. They all got the same piece of music. They've all got the same music. It, it all looks the same to me, just a bunch of dots on a white page. And um, it, it, they've got the same timing, the same score, I suppose. Is that right? Same score? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I don't know what a score is, so I thought I'd better ask. Um, so now, I want you to listen to Anna as she plays eight notes. starts over. Isn't that pretty? But now in about 30 minutes, you're going to be tired of those eight notes. You know? If I listen to those eight notes long, I'm just going to drift on off here. You know? But now Anna's got a talent. Because if I put your fingers on that viola where she's got her fingers and gave you the bow, do you think you could do that? She started playing in the third grade. And all these years, she's worked on that, worked on it, worked on it, till she plays those. Now listen, that's just her. That's one person in the church who is using their gift. Just one person. Now, let's, let's bring the maestro in here. Now listen to this. Now, that's even prettier, isn't it? That's even more pleasing. I could listen to that a little bit longer. And there's Luke. Luke started playing 14 years ago. And uh, that's so pretty. 
Now, Miller, you play. same timing different different all of these are different and yet together who wants to get married see because that's what you're thinking about right now we got married that was played at our wedding that's the church that's when you under God in love take your gift and use it in this body. And when you don't do it, just imagine if one of those dropped out and then another dropped out. Then you'd be back to just those same eight notes. Are you using your gift? And if you are using your gift, are you using it in love of the brethren? Let's stand. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.